to Paranus, a broadcast dedicated to helping Christians develop a biblical worldview, preparing us to think scripturally and soundly about our world today. I'm your host, Brian Nixon. Joining me on today's broadcast are my two co-hosts, Dr. Joseph Holden, author, pastor, and president of Veritas International University, and Professor Luke Betzner, pastor, author, and director of institutional effectiveness at Veritas International University. Welcome, gentlemen. Well, it's good to be back with you, Brian and Luke. Hey, great to be here, fellas. Thank you. Well, throughout this semester, our focus has been on apologetics. We've used Dr. Holden's book, Living Loud, as our springboard. On our last episode, we answered the question, can the New Testament be trusted? If you missed the episode, I encourage you to check it out. This week, we're answering the question, is Jesus God? Throughout the centuries, much debate has been given to the subject of whether Jesus is God. In the early church, various schools of thought arose to promote their perspective position. Many of these ideas were deemed heretical, which means a false teaching. As an example, Arianism. The founder, Arius, held that Jesus, while the Son of God, is neither eternal nor fully divine as God the Father. And we find modern versions of this mindset with the Jehovah Witnesses and other cults. Well, to contest this mindset, the early Orthodox Church created statements of faith known as creeds. One creed that directly combats Arianism was the Athanasian Creed, which in part reads, Thus the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, yet there are not three gods, but there is one God. And so the early church clarified the biblical position. But even with this biblical clarification, the debate continues to this day. So, Joe and Luke, with this in mind, we're going to jump into this incredibly important topic, which seems to still stir the pot in modern times. So, Joe, let's begin with you. Why is the deity of Jesus Christ so important? Well, Brian, it is the all-important question of who Jesus is. It's important because it's what distinguishes him from all other human beings that have ever lived. The fact that he can claim to be the Anthropos, the man-god. Now, throughout the centuries, there have been three major views about who Jesus is in this regard. First of all, you have people who think that Jesus is God, but not man. And we saw that in the early church with the Docetic Gnostics, and they felt that matter was evil, so they dismissed the humanity of Christ but accepted the deity. But then you have a second view that says Jesus is a good man but not God. And that should seem familiar to us because the Jehovah's Witnesses that knock on our door today would hold this view. He's a good man, a good moral teacher, but he's not God himself. In fact, humanism even adopts this perspective as well. Bertrand Russell in his book, Why I'm Not an Atheist, tells us that he was a good and moral teacher, but not God. But C.S. Lewis really um, lays into into Russell's idea in that you can't have a good God that lies about his deity. And then finally, in third, you have Jesus is fully God and fully man. That's the Orthodox Christian position, and that's always been the position. In fact, if you look back to the fourth century AD and you find the Nicene Creed, they dealt with the subject of whether Christ had the same nature as the Father, or whether he did not. 
And if he had the same nature, they would say he had homoousius, homo, the same substance. Or if he was not, he would they would say he had heterousius. In other words, that's another substance other than God. They landed on the homoousius. He is of the same nature of God. And besides, if Jesus is going to be our sacrifice on the cross, he has to be man in order to represent the offending party to God. Man has to pay this debt back to God for his sin. And it had to be through a perfect sacrifice. But since there was nobody on this earth that was perfect, everybody was fallen in sin, Roman 3.23 tells us, that God sent his son as a man, a perfect man, to be the offering or the sacrifice for that sin. And so it's important that he is a man because man has to pay back God and make the debt right. He is also God, and that makes him perfect without sin, and that makes him an acceptable sacrifice to propitiate or to satisfy the wrath of God against man. So it's so very important that the Christian approach sees Jesus as fully God and fully man. To dismiss one of the two natures of Christ will ultimately do damage to the atonement, to his sacrifice, and to his person. Joe, we would call this an essential doctrine, meaning it is essential to a biblical understanding of the Christian faith. And if you do not adhere to this doctrine, this biblical teaching, then we clearly could call that group um, a cult or heretical in their thought process. Would you agree? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you can just look around even today in our modern uh, religious movements and cults. If you take the Jehovah's Witnesses, they have this idea that he was the archangel Michael. Well, that makes him an angel rather than a God-man. Or if you go to the Mormon church or Latter-day Saints, they would say he's the spirit brother of Lucifer. Well, that makes his nature angelic if he's a brother of another angel. So it's important that we do our homework and are familiar with Scripture in order to recognize when those deviations do come up, because it's very important. So good. Thanks for that answer, Joe. Well, Luke, let's now turn uh, it over to you. How does the Bible address Christ's relationship with God the Father? Or, or maybe put another way, what does the Bible say about who Jesus is in relationship to God the Father? Great question. And it is wrapped up in those three things that Joe had mentioned prior to this. And obviously, when we look at who Jesus is, I think the best place to start would be with who he says he is. That's predicated, of course, on the fact that we believe the Bible to properly reveal the identity of those who are in the Godhead. But John 8, Jesus makes it as clear as he could. And this is where the homosia or homosia comes from. And that is, I and the Father are one. John 14, Jesus says, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And then John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, corresponds directly using the same term in John 1, 14. And the Word, speaking of Jesus Christ, was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And of course, that idea of only begotten means uniquely begotten. And so there's this idea that 
his relationship to the father is not one of inferiority as Apollinarius would have taught or where he was less human and therefore more God than human or that he was less God like Arius would have taught. These are indeed ancient heresies of the church because the mechanics of how that works, which we'll discuss in a little bit, are not easily understood. But his way of articulating his relationship with God was that he was and is the representation, the the people-facing representation of the Father. Now, he's not only an icon. We do not accept modalism in that God is just putting on a mask that looks like Jesus, but that he himself, as a person of the Godhead, represents all that the Father is. Colossians 2, 8 and 9 says this, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, some of which we've already discussed, and after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. This can't be approached with strictly a physical understanding. He says, For in him, speaking of Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So it puts it right together, Godhead bodily. So all that it meant to be God in a body that was fully human, as we know, incarnated at the point of his birth from Mary. So he had a body just like ours. John 1.14 says that, flesh, just like the kind of flesh that we wear, nothing inferior. And yet God dwelt with us. We find this, of course, in Matthew as well. His name should be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Nicodemus, John chapter 3, we know that no man can do the kinds of things that you do except God be with him. So just a little bit of the witnesses that spoke to it, as well as Christ himself and his statements about himself, would tell us this is what we understand God's relationship with Christ to be. And I'll just say this, and It simply means that Jesus is God, not a God, but the God. And this is hard for some folks to grasp because they think of God as a singularity. There's one God, but that is an office that is equally occupied by three persons. It's not his personal name. It's what he is. And there are two other persons that equally occupy that office, co-equally, so that we have three gods. Not that we have a third of God represented in one person at a time, but three persons equally sharing that title. And therefore, it takes nothing away, as Ephesians, excuse me, as Philippians says, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. It means it wasn't the idea of who and what God is lost nothing by the fact that Christ was equated with it. So that's as much as I could say in a short period of time about the relationship of Jesus to God as a title and an office and a person. Mm, So good, so good. I'm going to kind of do a follow-up question, but direct it towards you, Joe. Uh, Of course, Luke just expounded upon various scriptural references about uh, Jesus claiming to be God. But there's the famous biblical scholar who many of us appreciate on many, many different levels, but he had a what we would call a low eschatology. And and the person I'm talking about is William Barclay. Many of us know him through his various commentaries and so on and so forth. And in his book, A Spiritual Autobiography, William Barclay, again, the Scotsman, he says, it's not that Jesus is God. And then he goes down to say, the New Testament doesn't identify Jesus and God. 
Jesus did not say, he who has seen me has seen God. He said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So I think William Barclay, Joe, is really, and it's funny because he was a, a brilliant biblical scholar, but theologically, he didn't seem to to understand and or grasp the the New Testament teaching on this. So can you expound a little bit more on what Luke presented? Did Jesus ever claim to be God? Now, again, Barclay says he claimed to be one with the Father, but not God. How would you address that? Well, unfortunately, William Barclay was affected by anti-supernaturalism, and that would affect all your interpretations of Scripture. And though I appreciate some of his scholarship, um, this is something that was a plague for biblical studies, you know, throughout the 18th and 19th centuries. Even today, it still works its woe within uh, biblical research. But at the core of Christianity is the belief that Jesus is God manifested in the flesh. And justification for this is found throughout the scriptures, especially the New Testament in the Gospels, where Jesus makes very clear pronouncements. In fact, in John 8, 58, as he is finishing up his discussion with the Jewish religious leaders, he declared himself to be the I am of the Old Testament. And we know from Exodus 3.14 that the I am is the name or the nature of God himself. Uh, in John 8.58, he says, before Abraham was, I am. He takes the very name and nature of God and applies it to himself in front of those Jewish religious leaders. And every leader would have known what he was saying there, and that's why they picked up rocks to stone him. It was for blasphemy, for declaring that he was equal to God or God himself. And so um, this isn't just an isolated instance either. In fact, in John chapter 5, you have Jesus talking about that he is the Son of God that he says the Son can do nothing of the Father, and we ought to honor the Son just as we honor the Father. And the Jewish interpretation of what he was saying makes it very clear they understood Jesus to be making himself equal to God. You can see John 5.18. Or if you go over to John chapter 17, you find him in his high priestly prayer praying to the Father, and he says, Glorify me with the glory I shared with you before the world was. And we know that God does not share his glory with anybody else. And so Jesus must be God. Jesus received worship nearly a dozen times in the New Testament without any rebuke. Uh, if you remember the book of Revelation, you find that John fell at the feet of an angel, and the angel says, get up, I'm a servant just like you, John. Don't worship me, only worship God. And uh, Jesus never does that sort of thing to anybody who worshiped him. In fact, I really love John 20 when it says that Thomas finally realized that Jesus was the resurrected Lord, and he fell down and said Jesus was his Lord and his God. In fact, in the Greek text, it's even more strong, more powerful. It says, the Lord of me and the God of me. Uh, he's taken possession of that concept that Jesus was divine. Even on trial with the high priest, he would be asked directly, are you the blessed one? Are you the son of the most high? Are you the Messiah? He says, I am. And there is no doubt that Jesus 
was divine, he claimed to be so. Every time he says he was the son of God, it's a claim to divinity. It is a claim of deity because the son of God shares the very same nature of God. Son denotes his relationship to the father. Of literally means of the order of, and God is a description of the order of the nature that he's describing. So to say I'm the son of God or the son of the father means he shares the same DNA, so to speak, uh, as the father himself. Beautiful, wonderful answer. So so clearly the Bible teaches that Jesus claimed to be God and that he was God. So let's look at the other half of that. And Luke, I'll turn it over to you. How then can Jesus be both God, which Joe just gave us a plethora of biblical examples, but how can he be both God and man? Unpack that for us. Well, this really is the classic question where we try to get into some level of mechanics, and this is where some have gone to the right or to the left of the truth of these things, and that is what we in the orthodox view would call the hypostatic union, the union of two natures, and it's truly a union, it's not a fusion, where he's somehow or another a a, not to be irreverent, but a God-man milkshake in the way that his nature is made up, but two complete and distinct natures dwelling both individually and yet operably in the same person. And so when it comes to understanding that, the, the best way to think about that is probably to see the evidence of how Christ acted during his earthly ministry. He, ministry, he came after all to show us the Father, and so we find him eating, and sleeping, things that would be distinct and needs of, and we also find him needing community. He sought out community, even though he wouldn't trust himself to people. So there's these human social things that he does. And then there's also these godlike things that he does where he raises people from the dead, right? And he does miracles. So we see the operation of these two distinct natures and that Jesus wept. And we we find manifestations of what it means to be human. And we find clear indications of the operation of divine power. And so we see these items as far as the reality of who and what he was. And perhaps when it when we look at an illustration, some would say that the divine nature is immediately tangent to the human nature, but it is not superimposed over on top of it. I think the scripture does a really good job with describing this without getting too far into controversy. And it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. So here we see the transcendence, the transition, and was made in the likeness of men. So it's as close as we can get to a mechanic understanding, a mechanical understanding of this, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So we find that he lost nothing of what it meant to be God and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. So we find the 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 reconciliation here, the union of the two natures described as clearly and as straightforwardly as we can in Scripture. Beautiful, beautiful. 
So if Jesus has, as Joe pointed out, divine attributes, and Jesus has human attributes, as you pointed out, Luke, my follow-up question for you, Joe, and we hear this often, particularly in Islamic circles and other groups. So if the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all God, as the Bible teaches, and the creeds and statements of faith throughout history have have supported, do we have three gods? I mean, if you do simple math, one plus one plus one equals three. So how would we describe this triunity of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in an understandable and comprehensible way for um, people? Oh, that's something that we all seek is clarity when it comes to the Trinity. Now, instead of one plus one plus one equals three, I would revise that to say one times one times one equals one. So the whole basis of that confusion, as we just gave two mathematical examples of the difference between tritheism, which is one plus one plus one, and Trinitarianism, which is one times one times one equals one. See, triism, tritheism is the belief in three separate gods with their own separate existence. They're three separate individuals with three separate natures, and they have three separate existences. In other words, it differs from Trinitarianism or a triunity in that there are three distinct persons sharing one divine essence. You see, there's only one God that's manifested in three distinct, not separate, but distinct persons. And this is a major, major problem among people who confused tritheism with the Trinity. And just as an illustration to help us understand, you know, it helped me a lot to see that even a triangle, though there's only one triangle, there's three distinct points or tips to that triangle. Each tip is its own individual entity, so to speak, but yet there's only one triangle. So the Trinity is no more contradictory than a triangle with three sides to it. It has three distinct points, but yet there's one nature of triangleness there. And also our Trinity is three distinct persons united in one divine nature. In other words, there's one nature, God, and three distinct persons. There's one what or one essence, one nature, if you will, with three who's or three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And some people, if they don't come to those conclusions, they get confused when they see Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. They say, who was he praying to? Was he praying to himself? And the answer is no, he was praying to the Father because the Father is a distinct person of the Godhead. There's also no religion on the face of the earth that describes God as the scriptures do, the Trinity. The only Christianity offers a triune God. In fact, there's even a philosophical argument that is powerful against any idea that says there are more than one all-perfect God. Some say that there's, oh, there must be two all-perfect gods or three all-perfect gods. But the problem with that is when you start getting multiple gods that are all-perfect, you have to distinguish these multiple gods with differences within their nature. 
And if there's differences within their nature, one God will have what the other God does not. That's what makes them two or three or four. That's what distinguishes these gods. So if one has what the other one does not, then one or the other gods will lack some attribute. And God, as we know, cannot lack. And if they lack, they certainly are not God. So there can only be one all-perfect God. So good. It reminds me, Joe, of what you were saying here, that one of our professors, Dr. Jay Smith, who's over our Islamic Studies program, um, we were on a committee together in discussing with the student over this nature. And the student was uh, pulling together the doctrine of the Trinity of how to explain it to, to Muslims. And Dr. J. Smith bent over backwards to say, you know, we've really got to get this point correct, particularly when addressing Islamic um, individuals, because they are honed in to use that tritheism argument, one plus one plus one equals three. So Dr. Smith made it a point to say, you know, we've got to get our math correct. You know, one times one times one. I've heard others use one divided by one divided by one. Or what Dr. Smith said is eternity times eternity times eternity equals eternity. <laughs> so he, he really said, you know, using the right math is essential. But know that this is going to be one of the great contention points between Christianity and Islamic studies. And what's great for our listeners is, you know, you have Luke and Joe expounding upon it, but you could get online and hear one of our professors, Dr. Jay Smith, also give insight on this this topic and how to use it with um, uh, Muslims. It's it's very, very, I think, effective um, information for those. But uh, Joe, thank you for clarifying that. So Luke, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn it over to you now and I'm gonna dig a little bit deeper here. So throughout this broadcast, you both have mentioned that different cults, different groups, uh, and Joe really started off with his answer with this, is that that some would say, oh, Jesus is divine, yeah, but he's, he might be a little lesser than, than the Father. So they've degreed Jesus, if you will. You know, there's God, and then, yeah, Jesus is divine, but he's kind of like a little less, and then underneath that you have the Holy Spirit. So my question to you, Luke, is does the Son of God, that term that Jesus used and others used for Jesus, is he a lesser being than the Father, or is he of one absolute essential nature? Classic question, Brian. And, of course, Arius, in his teaching of subordinationism, thought that he was not. Now, from what we can tell, the origination of this understanding comes from an axiomatic look at the title Son of God and of the idea that the Son was the begotten of the Father. And we have, unfortunately, and I'm using the word we very loosely, but human beings will have this tendency to superimpose our ephemeral existence over eternal truths and then come to bad theological conclusions. And this is one of those instances where simply because it talks about Jesus being the Son of God, it does not mean that he is in some type of inferior or developmental stage who will at some point come to full fruition or at some point in the past has come to full fruition and is in any way different existentially than God himself. But that term gets just really abused, the Son of God, 
or the only begotten of the Father. And this is what Arius thought. Now, there's a couple of good ways to deconstruct that understanding, and that is when we say, well, a father is always greater than a son, Again, this is axiomatic understanding because we're thinking in our mind of a full adult parent who's holding a baby child in their arms. But when it comes to human to human, if we were to say, well, is the baby worth less than the father? And in the sense of being human, is the child any different than the father other than just you know external characteristics that we can visibly see? No, would be the answer. And so there is a unifying aspect of humanity that underwrites the axiomatic inferiority that we superimpose on this theological concept of Jesus being less than the Father. And it's it's not supposed to be the originating point for our spiritual understanding. Our spiritual understanding is that Christ became the uniquely begotten of the Father when he was here, but he was the Son of God before that. His sonship is eternal, just as he is, because it was a chosen order of submission. Which brings us to our second and final point here. A chosen order of submission has nothing to do with equality in person or in attribute. It has everything to do with a chosen hierarchy of function. And this is what we see. This is why they've taken that, because I don't know how we would ever distinguish them one from another if there was if they had not chosen to order themselves in this manner and to assign to themselves function, office, position, and relationships. And so what we find is that Jesus is not lesser than the Father simply because he has a different role than the Father and has a different manifestation than the Father and that he came in the flesh. None of those things speak to his co-equality with the rest of the Godhead. It literally, as far as I can understand, is the function of an axiomatic understanding of human relationships superimposed on theological truths. So good. You know, there's an early theological Greek term that I've always loved, and it's perichoresis, and it's Mm. the mutual exchange among the Godhead founded and bound in love, and of course, will in essence. And so perichoresis, and and, and let's, let's be honest, Joe and Luke, there is a sense of mystery here. I'm not saying it's not uh, you know, obviously we're comprehending it, but but God is so much beyond our finite mind. So we could maybe comprehend the elements of it, but we will never fully apprehend this amazing God that we serve, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that that imagery of a perichoresis, this this mutual exchange of love among the Godhead, it's a it's a beautiful term. Wouldn't you both agree? Oh, absolutely. That's a beautiful absolutely. one. In fact, it reminds me somewhat of, um, you know, the argument that says you it's impossible to have love unless there is a lover, a loved one, and a spirit of love. And that's only found in the Christian God, this triune nature. And it is the love, the lover is the father, the loved one the object of his love is the Son, and the spirit of love is the Holy Spirit. You see, love can't be properly directed at its object unless you have more than one. So though Judaism has the right God, they don't have the right nature of God. 
And then Muslims have one God in number, which is correct, but it's not the same God as the Christian or the uh, Judaism God, because they can't put forth a God that can say that I am a God of love, as John, 1 John 4 uh, tells us. So all three components need to be present if there's truly going to be a God of love there. Hmm. So good. I'm glad you you chimed in with that, Joe. So let me let me actually keep it on you here for, for a minute, Joe. You, you know, we've made the case that obviously the Bible teaches that Jesus claimed to be God. Luke unpacked for us how Jesus can be both God and man. You, Joe, talked about this triunity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So is there any biblical proof that Jesus is who he says he is, God? I mean, you know, I could walk around the streets all day long and say, I'm God, I'm God. But at some point, someone's going to test me, test my claims, and I'm either going to have to show them that I'm not God or that I am God. So my question for you, Joe, is do we have proof that Jesus ever did that? Did he demonstrate, did he prove to us that he is indeed God? He did. In fact, uh, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 4, told us that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God, remember that's a claim to deity, with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So the crowning proof of who Jesus is and what he said about himself and what others said about him is found in the physical resurrection of Christ three days after his crucifixion. When he came out of the grave, he validated all his teachings and all his statements about himself. And somebody rises from the dead, that person should have instant credibility with us. And it proves that his statement was correct. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, it talks about signs and wonders that went forth first from the Lord, but then those who heard him continued to work those miracles and confirmed who he was and his teaching. In Acts 2.22, it says that Jesus Christ was a man accredited or attested to you by his signs and wonders and miracles and so forth, that these miracles gave us proof and evidence that we can hang our hat on to say, Jesus came from heaven to earth. He took upon himself the form of a man. That's Philippians chapter two. I love what Tertullian says about that incarnation in Philippians 2. He says, it was not the subtraction of deity, it was the addition of humanity. It was the putting on of a coat of a human nature over and above the divine nature. And that means that you and I, as expositors of Scripture, need to ask two questions about Jesus every time we read about him in the scriptures. You have to ask one question concerning his deity and a second question concerning his humanity. In other words, did Jesus get tired? Well, you have to ask it of both natures because the answer is no, he did not get tired as deity, but yes, he did get tired in John chapter 4, wearied from his journey at the when he was talking to the woman at the well in his humanity. Did he bleed? Not in his deity, but yes, in his humanity. Did he need sleep? No, in his deity. Yes, in his humanity. And when we realize these two natures are working through Jesus at all times, that tells us that we can solve these apparent difficulties and contradictions. For example, 
that Jesus didn't know the time of the second coming. He says, only the Father in heaven knows. Not even the angels know that. He was speaking from his humanity. But as divine and omniscient, he knew that in his divine nature when the second coming was. He knows all things or he wouldn't be God. So we do have to ask those two questions. It helps keep us out of a lot of difficulties when reading the text. Hmm. Great answer. And Joe, of course, my inclination is let's really focus in on the resurrection and talk about how the disciples responded to it and so on and so forth. But lucky for us, that is our discussion question for next time when we answer, did Jesus rise from the dead? But for now, let's conclude this broadcast with how we normally do, um, letting our listeners who are into this topic and need some more information if we have book recommendations for them. So, Joe, let's start with you. Do you have any book recommendations that would really help our listeners? Yes. Uh, One of our faculty members, Dr. Ron Rhodes, he wrote a book called Christ Before the Manger. And he looks at Jesus before his incarnation, and he takes Old Testament passages, and and then he compares them to New Testament passages and tells us what he's like before he was born in Bethlehem. And I love it because he springs off of a verse in Proverbs that asks a question uh, to the reader, do you know the name of God's son? And that is a mention uh, not only there in Proverbs, but also in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman. And he goes through these wonderful passages to show you that Christ has always been divine. He's the eternal son of God who was incarnated in the flesh, John 1, 14, here to show us the way and what the father was like. Hmm. So Dr. Ron Rhodes' book, what a, what a great recommendation. Luke, how about you? Any book recommendations for our listeners? Sure. I've got one called The Gospel According to Heretics, and it's by David Wilhite. And it goes through a lot of some of the doctrines that we looked at, such as subordinationism or subhumanism, Arianism, um, or Apollinarianism, however you want to say it. But it goes through what we can know of how those were originally articulated, And it's a fascinating read for someone who wants to take that deeper dive into what those doctrines are and what the responses to them were. So good, so good. Well, Joe, Luke, thank you once again. It's always a pleasure being on the broadcast with you. Thanks, guys. It's good to be with you again. Absolutely. Always glad to be. Well, join us next time as we continue our discussion answering the question, did Jesus rise from the dead? Until next time, proclaim the gospel, equip the saints, and defend the faith.